excited to be with you today, and I'm honored to be included among such an esteemed lineup of speakers. My warm thanks to Dr. O'Donnell and to Christendom College for the opportunity to be with you today to participate in this conference, and indeed to be a member of the Christendom's graduate program in Alexandria. It's difficult to imagine a more supportive place for the study of theology um, than what I found here at Christendom. I would also like to thank each one of you for being here today and especially for the work that you are doing and have done for the new evangelization. My topic today is conversion and apologetics, and the theme of the conference is apologetics and the new evangelization. The conference title suggests, quite rightly, I think, what apologetics and the new evangelization are really all about. Before all else, they start from an encounter with Christ, and their end should be to bring others to encounter Christ. I wish then to eliminate what I think are some of the more important relationships between encountering Christ, conversion, and apologetics as an enterprise integral to the new evangelization. My presentation will unfold in three stages. First, I will clarify the nature of apologetics and its relationship to evangelization looking especially at the role apologetics must play in the context of the new evangelization. Second, I will explore why, for apologetics to be successful, we must attend not only to the objective dimension of apologetics, arguments, evidences, and so on, but also to the subjective human factors which condition whether assent is actually given to an objectively sound argument. Here, I will draw on insights from blessed John Henry Newman on the phenomenon of conversion. Finally, in the third stage, I will propose that holiness of life is the most effective propedeutic to apologetics, and I will set forth the reasons why I think this is so. Chiefly, that to the extent we attain holiness of life, the image of God is perfected in us, so that when we encounter others, they encounter in us Christ his love for them, and the renewal of creation he brings. While I'll end my talk there, in the interest of time, I suggest in conclusion that this holiness of life, which is so necessary for effective apologetics, is actually attained by finding, accepting, and fulfilling one's personal vocation. For it is in this way that we live out the liturgy and the sacraments, and the love of God is made perfect in us. The core thesis I wish to propose, then, is not something new. It's simply that, in order to lead others to conversion, we have to start by continually converting ourselves. Evangelization demands Christian authenticity. However, what I hope to elucidate beyond what you have heard before are some of the specific reasons why holiness of life is so necessary for apologetics and precisely what it is about Christian holiness that can lead people to a more open consideration of the reasons for the faith. One, apologetics in the context of the new evangelization. To frame the discussion, let me propose a taxonomy of apologetics, theology, and evangelization. To make an apology in the theological sense, as you know, is not to apologize. It is not an admission of guilt or a request for forgiveness, 
but rather a reasoned defense, a statement of the rationale for how we live and what we believe as Catholics. Apologetics is not the same thing as evangelization, but it is integral to it. Apologetics is a part of the enterprise we call evangelization. To evangelize, simply speaking, is to proclaim the gospel in its integrity and credibly. It is to enjoin repentance and to announce the good news, namely the truth about Jesus and the proximity of God's reign. If evangelization is a matter of relating certain content, a matter of proclaiming Jesus and his message, a message principally about repentance in the kingdom, the task of apologetics is to rationally explain and defend this content. In this way, apologetics is the really theological and sometimes philosophical dimension of evangelization. That is because theology is fides quarens intellectum, as Saint Anselm taught us, faith seeking understanding. And apologetics proposes the reasons for faith. It is not that theology is apologetics, but apologetics is a form of theology, or perhaps more accurately, it is a certain applied form of theological understanding. Theology is broader than apologetics insofar as apologetics is by nature occasional and defensive in the precise but ideally not the polemical sense. Theology, by contrast, is not by nature occasional or defensive. It is comprehensive in scope and systematic, one might even say philosophical in character. Theology attempts to penetrate and articulate the meaning, coherence, and implications of what is believed as a whole. Apologetics is integral to the task of evangelization because evangelization occasions a choice on the part of the hearer. Confronted with God's word credibly presented and the relationship Jesus offers through it, one must accept or reject it, or I suppose, choose to ignore it or defer the decision as we see certain of the Athenians and Herod Agrippa II doing in the Book of Acts. But free choices are rationally motivated. We choose for reasons. Thus, if people are to make a responsible decision to accept the gospel, they must understand its rationale. They must see why it makes sense to give their assent to the set of claims being proposed. Evangelization then needs apologetics to be effective. We must proclaim the gospel not only with deeds, but with words and explanations too. But what does apologetics need to be effective, particularly in the context of the new evangelization? To answer that question, it is first necessary to determine what is new about the new evangelization. What is new about the new evangelization can be seen most clearly by contrasting it with the old or original evangelization. The term original evangelization may be taken to refer to the paradigm of evangelization that began in the first century, is recorded in the New Testament, and which in a certain respect is still carried on in some places even today. During the first four centuries, the church experienced remarkable expansion under adverse conditions and not only in the Mediterranean world, but as far east of Jerusalem as India. After the Edict of Milan in the early fourth century, 
Christianity spread through the extent of the Roman Empire as its official religion. After the fall of the empire in the fifth century, the gospel spread to the reaches of Europe, starting in what we now call the Middle Ages. With European exploration of the globe at the dawn of the early modern period, the gospel was then taken to the Western Hemisphere and parts of the Far East, beginning in the 15th century. The circumstance that most characterizes this original paradigm of evangelization is that those to whom the gospel was taken were people who had never before heard it. And to some extent, that same work continues today. However, by the 18th century, a process of secularization began to overtake Europe, while significant portions of Eastern Christianity had, by that point, been widely subdued or eradicated by the spread of Islam centuries earlier. The process of Western secularization, which, has gained, which gained rapid progress from the 19th century to our own day, and which is no longer contained only to Europe, was fueled by, among other things, a need for moral reform in the late medieval church, the schism occasioned by the Protestant reformers, its attendant political conflicts, and, in the intellectual sphere, the breakdown of scholasticism. The principal circumstance which distinguishes the new evangelization is this situation of secularization and ecclesial fragmentation. Whereas originally the gospel had to be preached to people who did not know it, today the gospel must be preached to those who already know it, or who at least think that they know it, but have rejected it. And to those who have not accepted the gospel in its integrity, either because they have rejected some part of it, or because they have never heard it preached in its integrity. In short, while the original evangelization generally brought the gospel to the pagan world, the new evangelization must bring the gospel to a world described by some as post-Christian, and not least to people who are baptized but lack faith. One thing we can ascertain from reflection on the circumstances of the new evangelization is that we cannot expect those with whom we are called to share the gospel to be well disposed for hearing it or earnestly considering its rationale. But the task of apologetics is to set out the reasons for accepting the gospel and the related truths of the Catholic faith. So for apologetics to be carried out effectively, it is necessary that there be some preparation of the hearer whereby that person becomes disposed to seriously and openly considering the arguments and explanations proposed for the faith. It is here that I think certain insights from Newman can be of some help. Two, the human dimension of apologetics, Newman on implicit reason, certitude, and assent. It may seem obvious enough that a hearer's predispositions are an important consideration for one engaged in apologetics and evangelization. But why a person's predispositions are so important can be better understood in light of Newman's teaching on reason and faith. In Newman's university sermons, written during his Anglican period, and his later magnum opus, an essay in aid of a grammar of assent, Newman attempts a phenomenology of the hidden processes of the mind, especially as they bear upon belief and conversion. Newman makes two important distinctions in particular that merit our attention. 
The first is his distinction of implicit from explicit or reflective reasoning. The second is his distinction of assent from inference. Newman's mature teaching on these two distinctions is the fruit of a lifetime of reflection by one uniquely well poised to consider the matter of conversion in light of the relationship between faith and reason. Newman was himself a convert, and in addition to being an accomplished theologian, philosopher, and educator, he was also a conscientious pastor. During his term as university chaplain at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin at Oxford, Newman's pastoral responsibilities included care for the industrial working class neighborhoods of Cowley and Littlemore. Newman regularly made rounds on home visits to his parishioners. And in becoming acquainted with his diverse flock, Newman developed an appreciation for the fact that sound reasoning is not the exclusive purview of the trained philosopher, but also the factory girl, to borrow an expression from one of his letters. Implicit and explicit reason. Reasoning, Newman grasped, is not reducible to only the overt, reflective, and formally expressed operations of the intellect, as some aspects of enlightenment rationalism and empiricism tended to suggest, but is rather something that ordinary people, even those without a formal education, engage in regularly, and for the most part, remarkably well. Newman came to appreciate that while such people may not be able to articulate the reasons for their convictions, or develop formal arguments in defense of them, their convictions were not, therefore, unreasoned or unfounded. And much of the time, they were also true. But in what way could such convictions be an operation of reason if they were not the result of formal, reflective argument? The answer Newman grasped was that the operation of reason is much more subtle and complex than we tend to realize. Much more complex, in fact, than any formal argument can capture or adequately express. For besides the formal, logical operations we tend to identify with reasoning, there is much of the intellect's operation that remains implicit, unreflective, even subconscious, and it is typically through such operations that the mind actually arrives at a conclusion. In a vivid and oft-quoted passage of one of his university sermons, Newman likens the operation of implicit reason to, as a quote, a clamberer on a steep cliff who, by quick eye, prompt hand, and firm foot, ascends how he knows not himself, by personal endowments and by practice rather than by rule leaving no track behind him and unable to teach another. Newman calls this informal clambering process whereby reason arrives implicitly at some conclusion by means of a kind of ordinary genius, habitus, or something loosely like intuition or instinct, natural inference. That's how he describes that process, natural inference. In contrast, explicit reason operates by adverting to the rules of logic. And its paradigmatic form is syllogistic inference, whereby a conclusion is deduced from two premises linked by a middle term. According to Newman, syllogistic deduction, which he calls formal as opposed to natural inference, 
does not exactly represent the actual process by which the mind typically arrives at some conclusion, but rather is a subsequent reflective operation whereby the mind formulates ex post facto an orderly account of its operation, or really the rationale for its arriving at the point it did. The way the mind works something out in the first place is not identical to the tidy, formal justification of the conclusion that can be given once the conclusion is reached. The important point is that reasoning is not reducible to the syllogism, and reasons for a position can be present without being explicitly identified or averted to. Probability, demonstration, and certitude. The difference between implicit and explicit reasoning has implications for how we understand the strength of arguments and the justification of conclusions. Whereas formal syllogistic inference is demonstrative and has the nature of a proof in the strict sense of the word, implicit reason judges according to what Newman calls antecedent probabilities and does not attain the rigor of a strict proof. Before considering whether this is a problem, particularly for the justification of belief or certitude, it is first necessary to consider why Newman thinks reasoning about concrete matters is probabilistic. The reason why natural inference or implicit reasoning is probabilistic rather than strictly probative, like explicit reasoning or formal inference, is that whereas explicit syllogistic reasoning concerns ideal or abstract content, content Newman calls notional, namely propositions and their constituent concepts, implicit reasoning concerns what is concrete in particular. Because the complex reality of real things, including what contemporary philosopher James Ross has aptly called the overflow necessities of real things, because, those, oh, because the complex reality of real things always outstrips our limited concepts of them, reasoning about concrete real things is necessarily gappy, my term, not Newman's. This gappiness is what makes reasoning about, con this gappiness is what makes reasoning about the concrete probabilistic rather than demonstrative. Crucially, however, the probabilistic nature of implicit reasoning does not rule out certitude in concrete matters. That is because, for Newman, an accumulation of probabilities pointing towards some one conclusion is, practically speaking, as sufficient for certitude as a formally demonstrative proof. To illustrate this, Newman compares the accumulation of probabilities to a cable and a formal proof to a metal bar. Just as the threads, the wire threads of a cable, are individually weak, so too a single probability is not enough to establish a certainty. But just as an accumulation of wires twisted together into a cable can be as strong as a solid metal bar, so too a convergence of probabilities can be practically as strong as a proof. Notice that Newman does not say such a convergence of probabilities is a proof, nor does he say that strict proofs are absolutely impossible or that they are unimportant. All of these qualifications are of obvious significance for apologetics. Newman simply says that strict proof 
is necessarily formal, and to that extent does not touch the concrete. And in the concrete, our reasoning does not attain to the level of strict proof, though this does not block the rational justification of belief, for a convergence of probabilities suffices for certitude. Certitude for Newman is a kind of assent, namely a deliberate, unconditional, and conscious assent to a proposition as true. Certitude then, as he says, is an assent to an assent. But what exactly is assent? That brings us to Newman's distinction between assent and inference. Assent and inference. According to Newman, assent is not the same thing as inference, whether the formal inference of explicit reasoning or the natural inference of implicit reasoning, although assent does normally and naturally follow upon inference. The difference is that by inference, by nature, is conditional. It is the holding of a certain conclusion contingent upon the apprehended reasons for it. In contrast to this, assent is unconditional. It is not the drawing of a, prop of a position from principles, but the holding of it. Assent is not the mere passive recognition of the relationship between a conclusion and the reasons that necessitate it. Rather, assent is a kind of commitment of the self to that conclusion. Because of what I have called the gappy nature of reasoning about concrete realities, the mind is not compelled by argument, even when it is sound. And so, an argument that is objectively sound may still fail to subjectively convince. One ought to assent to a sound argument, but one does not have to, and one will not, in fact, give assent if one does not have the requisite good sense and other dispositions necessary to recognize the sufficiency of a given set of converging reasons for belief. Because arguments about concrete matters do not attain the level of a strict proof, it is necessary to decide at a certain point either that there is sufficient warrant to justify assent or not. To make this decision well, Newman thinks a certain virtue is required. One needs a kind of prudence or practical reasonableness he calls the illative sense by which to judge at a certain point the evidence for a given position is sufficient. The illative sense determines the threshold beyond which it would be unreasonable to dig in one's heels and refuse assent. Could one still raise further questions and objections to the reasons presented? Certainly. By the nature of reasoning about concrete realities, one could go on interminably clarifying and elaborating an argument, amassing reasons for a conclusion, anticipating and forestalling as yet unforeseen objections. It is impossible on a practical level to ever complete such a project to develop the perfect argument. A lifetime would not be long enough. Hence the need for practical wisdom, the illative sense, to kick in at a certain point and issue the prudential judgment that the reasons are sufficient 
and the conclusion to which they point is to be believed. The moral factor in assent. Why do people believe what they believe? In simple terms, one is not convinced of a view willy-nilly. People believe what they want to believe. What Newman shows us is that one tends to believe in respect to what is real, what one finds probable. And what one finds probable, that is, how the mind closes the gaps that necessarily attend reasoning concerning the real, is very much a function of one's subjective predispositions, one's existing convictions, suspicions, past experiences, expectations, wishes, proclivities, opinions, hopes, dislikes, and so forth. Why people believe what they do, even when they err, is usually perfectly understandable when viewed in light of their starting points. In Newman's estimation, human reasoning, at least the implicit kind, is for the most part quite reliable. Reason generally delivers on what it is given to work with. But what comes out of the reasoning process is largely a function of what goes into it, including one's suppositions and other antecedent dispositions. People can argue badly, but reason well. And in a different vein, people can reason well, but err in their beliefs, and this regardless of how well they argue. While a sound argument might not be believed, so too an unsound argument might be believed. And while such a belief could be due to faulty reasoning, what Newman observed is that it is not necessarily due to a defect in the operation of reason as such, but rather a defect in character or starting points. By pointing up the moral and personal subtleties of human reasoning beyond its more obvious formal and strictly intellectual character, Newman draws our attention to the subjective dimension of the ap apologetic task. We ignore this dimension at the risk of failing to accomplish the mission Jesus entrusted to us. Yet precisely because apologetics is the theological dimension of evangelization, it is necessarily preoccupied with formal reasoning and with argumentation, rightly so. So ignoring the subjective dimension of the task is an easy mistake to make. But when we make it, all our efforts are wasted except for our goodwill. We may as well be talking to a wall. It's an experience many of us may have had, right? trying to share the faith. What then is the most urgent task of a new apologetics for the new evangelization? I would suggest that it is to cultivate in others, so far as we are able, the necessary dispositions to earnestly consider the reasons for the faith. We've got the arguments. What we need is a hearing. Cor ad cor loquitur. Heart speaks to heart, as Newman's Episcopal motto ran. Three, encountering Jesus, the reign of God, and the humanity of Christ. In order to understand what will best enable us to cultivate in others the sort of dispositions in question, it makes sense to consider the example of those who have done it successfully. People like John Paul II, Brother Andre, 
Mother Teresa, Josephine Bakita, Padre Pio. Perhaps some of you may have even had the opportunity to know or meet one of these people, or have been blessed with the good fortune to know someone less famous, but still of a similar character. What is it about these individuals that drew people to Jesus? It isn't fame. Not all the individuals I mentioned were really famous in their lifetime, and more importantly, none of those who were, who were famous had the sort of effect on people I'm talking about only after they became famous. If anything, it was the other way around. These individuals became famous because of the effect they had on people. Neither can it be tallied up to charisma. Not all the people I mentioned were naturally charismatic, although I admit they did all possess a certain personal attractiveness I would ascribe to grace. In any case, it would be easy enough to identify saints who brought many to Christ despite not having a magnetic personality. The difference people detected in encountering these emissaries of Christ, I would suggest, is not fame or charisma, but holiness. But what is it about holiness that attracts and disposes us? I think it is that in a holy person, we encounter Jesus. In the face of a saint, we see the face of the Lord. For to the extent the love of Christ is perfected in a person, the more he or she is conformed to his image. But this does not so much answer our original question as push it back a step. What is it that's different about encountering Jesus? Why, during his earthly ministry, did people follow him? What about Jesus attracted them? It is true that in some cases, what attracted people to Jesus were his miracles. But we also see from the Gospels that Jesus' miracles supposed faith. So the question remains, what attracts people to Jesus and impels them to respond to his word in the first place? What is different about him? The most obvious answer is that Jesus is God. That is a profound point worthy of further consideration in its own right. But I don't think it's quite right as an answer to our question. It's true and important that in seeing the human face of Jesus, we see the face of God. But the crucial point not to miss is this. In Jesus, God has a human face that people can see and be attracted to. It is not that the difference people recognize and are attracted to, sorry, that are attracted by, is Jesus' divinity. If anything, what we see when we look at the New Testament is that when people encounter Jesus, they tend not to recognize his divine identity, at least initially. We often tend to think that what is different about Jesus is that he is God, and that otherwise, because he is truly and fully human, he is just like us. What I wish to emphasize, however, is that Jesus' difference from us is not only his divinity. There is, additionally, a certain respect in which he is different from us in his humanity. I would suggest that it is precisely this human difference that people first recognize and respond to when they encounter Jesus. 
But what is it they see, and why is it attractive? The human holiness of Jesus. The epistle to the Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is like us in all things but sin. Jesus is therefore unlike us in his sinlessness. Jesus obviously did not sin in his divine nature, but Jesus' human sinlessness requires some further explanation. The Council of Chalcedon teaches that Jesus is one person with two natures. The person Jesus is, is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word of the Father. The eternal word necessarily possesses a divine nature because he is a divine person. But the word also has a human nature, which he assumes in the incarnation, with no detriment to his personal unity, his divinity, or to the humanity he assumes. In sum, the two natures of Jesus are united in the one person he is, each nature remaining distinct and uncompromised by the union. An entailment of Chalcedon's teaching that Jesus is truly and completely human is that Jesus has a human soul. This point, in fact, was not always fully appreciated. In the fourth century, Apollinaris of Laodicea taught that Jesus lacked a human soul. This position was part of a larger error called monophysitism, literally one natureism, which denied the duality of natures in Christ. Wishing to preserve a strong account of the unity of the incarnate word, Apollinaris insisted that the eternal word became incarnate by taking to himself a human body and supplanting the human soul of Jesus. According to this view, as the soul is to the body, so too is the second person of the Trinity to Jesus' manhood. Thus, on Apollinaris' view, Jesus lacked a human soul, a created natural principle of direction, or hegemonicon, within his humanity. Rather, the direct or immediate controlling principle of Jesus' humanity was God straight on. The church rejected monophysitism and Apollinarianism, but in a certain respect agreed with their strong insistence on the unity of Christ. The difference was that for the fathers of Chalcedon, this unity didn't come at the expense of the integrity of either of Jesus' two natures. According to the council fathers, Jesus has not only a human body, but also a human soul. It is in this light that Jesus' sinlessness can be understood. Jesus did not lack sin because he was not fully human, lacking a human soul, which could be the locus of original sin or the principle of personal sin. Rather, Jesus' complete humanity, including his soul, with its capacities for cognition and free choice, had no trace of sin. Jesus was perfectly holy, not only as God, but also as man, the grace of Christ. The first chapter of John's gospel teaches, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This text was a locus classicus for Thomas Aquinas' teaching on the grace of Christ. 
In Thomas's view, John tells us first that Jesus was full of grace, and second, that having this plenitude of grace, Christ is the fountainhead of whatever grace we have. It is for these reasons that Thomas sometimes calls the grace of Christ capital grace, for it flows from Christ the head, caput, to his members through the sacraments and whatever other channels of grace there are. Whatever grace we have, then, is a participation in the grace of Christ, and we have this grace only by association with him. Now, Jesus' human holiness is related to his divine personhood, for it is the incarnation itself, which Thomas calls the grace of union, which is the basis for the fullness of sanctifying grace that fills Christ's human soul. Because Christ's human soul is the human soul of the eternal word, united to him in person, it cannot but be holy. But it is important to realize that the claim about the fullness of Christ's grace immediately concerns Christ's soul, and Christ only has a soul as man. So the holiness and grace of Christ are features of his manhood. They are aspects of the incarnation. The beauty of the new creation. Jesus as man is the incipient kingdom of God. So far, I've indicated that it is the holiness of Jesus as man, a holiness rooted in, but not reducible to, his divine personhood, which is the difference that attracts us to him. But a further question, this is the last question, is why the holiness of Jesus as man is humanly appealing. The answer, it seems to me, is that what we perceive in recognizing the human holiness of Jesus is the beauty of the new creation. And this attracts us because it is the beauty of the renewal that all creation groans for. Grace perfects nature, and Christ's created humanity, suffused with sanctifying grace because of its proximity to the eternal word, is a new creation. In fact, the humanity of Christ, starting with his soul, is the first new creature, so to speak, in the eschatological renewal God is accomplishing. Hence, this eschatological renewal of the created order is present to us personally in Christ, in its incipient stages. We long for this renewal because it fills the hopes and desires that we have as human, even before our nature is elevated by a share in God's own life at baptism or after confession. It is in this light that the heart of the gospel, Jesus' preaching of the kingdom of God, can be more clearly understood. The idea of the kingdom can be rather an elusive concept for us as Catholics and as citizens of a modern liberal democracy. Our theological tradition has not explicitly concentrated much on the theme until recently, even though the New Testament has. And socially, we are schooled to believe that kings and kingdoms are oppressive or otherwise politically retrograde. This poses a serious challenge that must be overcome in any attempt to make the gospel intelligible in the contemporary Western world. The kingdom of God is not principally a physical piece of territory 
or political entity like a nation state. Much less is it a form of despotism or tyranny. Rather, the kingdom of God is more clearly rendered the reign of God. For the kingdom principally is God's effective rule, the perfect fulfillment of eternal and natural law, the establishment of God's active and definitive governance over the created order. The establishment of God's rule actualizes divine justice, or the righteousness of God. It affects the due ordering of creation. In contrast to this, scripture portrays sin as rebellion, as sedition against the creator's will or rule. As long as there is sin, the reign of God is not definitively established, and the reign of God is established wherever there is obedience to God's law. Thus, God's kingdom starts as an interior moral reality, and from there extends outward to the material world. It quite literally becomes incarnated. The human heart of Jesus, untainted by sin and perfectly in accord with the Father's will, is the locus of, indeed is, the incipient kingdom of God. Jesus' human heart his intellect and will, and subject to these, his passions, are fully ordered to God's rule, God's law. By reigning in the human heart of Jesus, God reigns in Jesus as man. For the heart of Jesus is the hegemonicon, or the controlling principle, of his entire humanity. So the whole human nature of Jesus, starting with Jesus' human soul, is the first bit of created territory where God's definitive reign is established. The human heart of Jesus is the first small part of the world that God takes back in his eschatological renewal of creation. It makes you think about devotion to the sacred heart in a whole new light, doesn't it? This, I would urge, is what it means for Christ to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus can preach the kingdom of God is at hand and present among his hearers because God reigns over creation in his very person, starting with his sinless human soul. So God's reign is extended to us when we become part of Jesus, who is the incipient kingdom. We do that through repentance, conversion of heart, and baptism by which we enter the church, Christ's mystical body, the people of God, which is a more expanded form of the incipient kingdom. When by conversion of heart we turn to the Lord and in freedom subject ourselves to his rule in our actions, God's justice is established in our hearts and his kingdom is extended. We become living stones in God's grand construction project of building a people his own. Hence the idea of Christian righteousness, so central to the teaching of St. Paul, is one way of talking about the kingdom Jesus preaches in the Gospels. It is in this way, starting with our own ongoing conversion, that Christ's love is made perfect in us, and we become a new creation. 
The perfecting of Christ's love in us is the increase of justification of which the Council Fathers of Trent speak. The increase of justification or righteousness is not so much a matter of our loving God more, but rather a matter of our abiding in God's love by acting in accord with faith as the primary organizing commitment of our lives. To the extent we act in this way, by God's grace, ourselves are progressively integrated with faith in Jesus so that his love of us reaches down to every aspect of our lives in almost a capillary fashion. This is how the image of God is perfected in us so that when we encounter others, they might see in us some reflection of what the disciples saw in Christ or what we see in the saints, a goodness and a love we desire and something to hope for, the beauty of the new creation. Sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Amen. Thank you.